All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here tonight, and I know that you brought us here for a reason. I ask God that you will be with the speaker as he preaches tonight, and I'm sorry that I can't remember his name right now. <clears throat> I ask God that you will move in all of us tonight, and that we will remember this sermon, and that we will, it'll change us inside. And ask for all these things in your Holy Son's name, amen. All right, I'm glad to be here tonight, and uh, for Dan and Michelle, who I think are at a youth leadership conference, and um, I mean, this time last week, it sounded outside like the end of the world was upon us with the uh, thunder and the lightning and the rain. I don't know how Dan arranges those special effects, so I think that tonight's going to be a little bit less dramatic, but I'm glad to be here to have an opportunity to share the word with you. My name is Greg Cook. For those of you that I have not had the pleasure to meet yet, I work with the middle school boys. And so um, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will speak to you through the word tonight. And we'll go home blessed. Um, all right, sounds like it came on. There we go. All right, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. All right, in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to, Jesus has been teaching people in parables. And the disciples come to him and they ask him, why? Why, why are you speaking in parables? And so he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, which is kind of weird because it's almost like Jesus is quoting himself since the words came originally from the Lord, or, uh, from the Lord to Isaiah. But this is what he says. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 13. It says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. So these words, both when Jesus is talking to them, he's talking to the Jews. When Isaiah originally spoke these words, he was talking to the Jews, God's people. These were people that had the written word of God. They heard it taught in the synagogues. And in this case, these people have witnessed with their own eyes Jesus perform miracles. So even with all of these advantages, with the word of God available to them and hearing it taught and seeing these miracles, he's painting a picture here of people that just don't get it. They just cannot connect the dots. It's a picture of spiritual blindness that in spite of everything they have at their disposal, being God's people, they don't get it. 
And so what I want to do tonight is talk a little bit about this concept of spiritual blindness because it's repeating itself today. We're watching it happen again now. And I want to describe this in such a way that hopefully you will be able to see the spiritual blindness that is occurring now in the church in America. So I want to start off with two stories that kind of illustrate blindness in a couple of different ways. So uh, a number of years ago, I was playing hide-and-seek with a bunch of guys. We had this, um, this friend of mine had a piece of property that was ideal for it, so we were out camping. And so there was all this wooded area and some trails and a road, so it was ideal for hide-and-seek. So as the adult... the one with the bullseye on him. Any game that an adult plays with young people, you are public enemy number one. It doesn't matter what the game is. It could be paintball. It could be dodgeball. It can be swimming. I mean, I'm pretty sure at one point in my life, I had developed superhuman muscles in my neck from resisting gangs of boys trying to dunk me in the pool. So it doesn't matter what the game is. When you're the adult competing against other kids, you are the object that they want to get. So we're playing hide-and-seek, and, and so they want to get me. I'm the guy that they want to catch. So during this one game, I was getting pretty close to base. And there was this clearing in the, in the middle of these woods. There had been this area that had been cleared out. So from where I was standing to where a base was, I either had to try to make it across that clearing without being spotted, or I had to take the long way and try to keep hidden. Well, before I could make that decision what to do, I got spotted. So this boy sees me, and he starts yelling out that he sees me, and he comes running at me. Now, what he didn't know was that in that clearing... It wasn't completely level. There was like a little dip in the ground, and it's dark outside. So Chris comes running at me, and he's yelling, I see him, I see him, and I boof. <laughs> he just face plants. So as you can imagine, this was one of the best moments of my career in youth work. And it wasn't just because he face-planted. It was the sound of it. Because in the night, all I could kind of see was his shadow moving at me. And I could hear him yelling, I see him, I see him. And, and, and when he hit the ground, it's not like it really knocked the breath out of him. He didn't just grunt. When he hit the ground, he's the only person that I've ever heard actually verbalize the word oof. He comes right. I could hear this, I see him, I see him, I oof. <laughs> and so at this point, it should have been a piece of cake for me to make it to base, but it wasn't meant to be because I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> so that is a case of blindness where he can't really see where he's going. Okay? Now the other story 
that I have to illustrate this is different. And unfortunately, it's probably the better analogy of what we're talking about with spiritual blindness. Four or five years ago, my wife and I went out of town just for the weekend, just to get away. Um, Work had been crazy. We just needed to go somewhere and do nothing. So we went to Cocoa Beach, and the plan was uh, to go to the beach and figure out where we're eating. That was it. So we drive down there Friday night. We get up Saturday morning. We get all our stuff together. We head to the beach, and we're walking out on the boardwalk over the dunes to the beach, and I could see something laying on the beach. I mean, it was in both directions as far as you could look. And I noticed there was also no one in the water. And so if you've got the picture that uh, Dan gave you. So what it was when we got down to the beach was jellyfish by the hundreds, okay? And it was in both directions as far as you could see. So we sat our stuff down, and we walked down to the surf, and sure enough, in the water, you could just see jellyfish all through the water. So we knew that whatever else we were doing that weekend, swimming in the ocean was out. But we'd come, we'd driven all the way down there to go to the beach, so we hung around there for a while just to relax and stuff. And while we were there this other family comes along. And they've got this four or five-year-old boy with them, and they sit their stuff down, and they're kind of doing what everybody else is doing, just kind of looking around wondering what happened here. And um, so they sit their stuff down, and then they start to make their way down to the water. And I'm watching them, and I said, I think they're going to get in the water. I said, surely they're not going to let their little boy get in that water. But they did. And I don't think he'd been in the water 30 seconds before he starts jumping up and down and thrashing and yelling because he got stung. So these people came, and you could see from the picture, you can't really miss the jellyfish. You have to step over them to get to the water. You can't really miss the fact that there's no one in the water. So they ignored all of that and went in the water anyway and got their little boy stung. That is the picture of spiritual blindness that we're talking about. When it's in your face and you ignore it anyway and get yourself hurt, that is... That is the type of spiritual blindness that Jesus is talking about. You've got the word of God. Nobody else has this. You hear it taught regularly. You've seen me do miracles. It's right in your face. And you still ignore it all, and you just don't get it. You just don't connect the dots as to what this is all about and who I am. So, I want to talk a little bit about what... What this apply, how this applies to us now. If you, we've got different verses. Um, some of them will be on the screen. You don't have to turn to them if you don't want to. But the first one I want to look at is in First Corinthians. This is First Corinthians, chapter two. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 14. He says, but a natural man, and that's referring to an unbeliever, somebody who has not come to faith. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So for unbelievers, there's a reason that they don't get it. It's because they're dead spiritually. They don't have the means. When we talk about the gospel and we talk about Jesus and who he is and sin and grace and salvation and all these things, it's foolishness to them. It's just People talking, I don't know what they're talking about, I don't get it. And so, for them, there's an explanation. Like the hide-and-seek game, there's an explanation for why he didn't see the dip. It was night. It was dark. And these people don't get it because they're in darkness. Uh, I got saved when I was in college. So shortly after that, I'd start having conversations with people about Jesus, about salvation and stuff. And afterward, I would be like perplexed. Like, why aren't they interested in this? Did they not hear what I just said? Did they not hear what I just told them about eternal life and forgiveness and grace? I, could, I was just mystified as to why they had no interest in this. And then I became a better student of the Bible and I read this. They can't get it. This is why, for those of us who have family members that are unbelievers or close friends or people we love and care about, what we ought to be praying for is that God will give them understanding. When I got, the night I got saved, I had three guys talking to me. And before they'd even stopped talking, it had happened. It was like somebody turned a floodlight on inside my head. And I basically, at that point, tuned them out. I don't even know what they said after that. But before they'd ever stopped talking, I got saved because God had given me understanding. It was just everything just became crystal clear. And I knew this is what I've been waiting for somebody to say. This is what I've been waiting for somebody to tell me. So before we ever prayed or anything, I was already reborn. My heart had already been resurrected because God had just made it crystal clear. This is the truth. This is what you've been waiting for somebody to tell you. This is what needs to happen to my son-in-law, who's an atheist. This is what needs to happen to my dad. This is what needs to happen to cousins. This is what needs to happen to people I work with. This is what needs to happen to people that I've been friends with since we were in elementary school. They need God to do the same thing to them that he did to me. That's what we need to be praying because if he doesn't do it, they'll never get it. But what happens when, it, when this spiritual blindness gets in the church? Revelation chapter 3. 
Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 14, Jesus gives a message to the church of Laodicea. This is the last in a series of seven messages to churches. And this is what he says to the church. Again, these are supposed to be the people of God. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is Jesus talking to the church and telling them, you don't get it. You've had every advantage that you could have. And you think you've got it all together. You think you're rich. You think you're wealthy. You don't need anything else. You cannot see how wretched you actually are. You could take the word Laodicea in that passage and replace it with the word America. Because this is exactly where the church in America is right now. The church in America thinks we've got our act together. We're the most powerful in the world. We're rich. We don't need anything. And Jesus is looking at the church saying, you are absolutely blind. You can't even see how far off you've gotten. You can't even see how far off the rails you've gone. When he talks there at the end about buying gold refined with fire and putting on white garments, that is symbolic language for telling them, you need to become holy again. You need to put on righteousness. Because the church in America has completely lost its identity. It has completely forgotten who it's supposed to be. And so we've got a little bit of time left that I want to show you, and I want to remind you, maybe it's not even reminding you. Maybe this is going to be the first time anybody's ever told you this. But my goal is for you to walk out of these doors tonight completely confident in who the Bible, what the Bible says you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. And stop trying to be somebody else. We're going to go through several different verses that I'll just call them out. But I want, I want to ask you to think about two questions. Number one, why are you a believer? I've been asking this question for probably 15, about 15 years now. I will ask different 
classes, whether it was at camp or retreats or wherever, I would ask guys personally and directly, why are you a believer? Nine out of ten just give me a blank stare. They don't know how to even begin answering that question. Why? Why are you here? Don't you have school tomorrow? Why, why are you here on a Wednesday night? Why do you get out of bed and come to church on Sunday morning? Is it because your parents expect you to? What's the point of this? Why are you a believer? We're sending a group of people to India in a few months. I'm going with them. India has millions and millions of people, the second largest, most populated country in the world. 80% of them are Hindu. 13% of them are Muslim. 3% are Christians. The church where we're going, I'm told, has a youth group. I'm planning to ask those kids, why? Because you're in a country where you are completely unusual. There had to be some reason for you to decide you believe this when everybody else around you believes something else. Why do you believe this? What makes you think this is the truth? How do you know we're not up here just pulling the wool over your eyes? Just making this stuff up as we go. How do you know? The second question I want to ask you is, if you believe that he saved you, then why would he do that? To what purpose? For what purpose would he save you? Was it just so he could bless you? Just so you could go to heaven? What was his purpose behind going through all of that suffering in order to save you. This is actually the most common theme in the Bible. It is spoken about and written about from Genesis to Revelation more consistently than any other topic in the Bible. It's basically, if you want to think of it this way, the plot of the Bible. And it's this. God is holy and he desires a people of his own, unique and distinct committed to him. That is the major theme of the Bible all the way through. So we have completely lost in the church in America this identity of being unique. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 or look at it on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 
Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And here it is, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That is not an instruction to isolate ourselves from unbelievers. Jesus didn't practice isolation. Paul didn't practice isolation. So it's not saying you have to withdraw. You have to isolate yourself from anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus. What it is saying is you are supposed to be distinct and unique and completely unlike them. And we spend most of our time trying to be like unbelievers. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to buddy up with them. When he says, stop, you're mine, you're my people, separate yourself from them and be totally different. Um, One of the things that I've noticed probably over the last year, it's kind of like trending is profanity. I mean profanity among people who claim to be Christians. It's almost like a badge of honor for them. Look, I'm a believer and listen to how I talk. I talk just like you. I use the same language. See how much I'm like you. See how well I relate to you. I talk, I use the same foul language that you do. I see it, I hear it in conversation, I see it in social media, and I keep thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I could outcuss everybody in this room, because that's how I used to talk. But why would I want to? Why would I want to sound like unbelievers? What honor is there in me proving that I can make a more creative use of the F word than them? What glory is there in that? What praise does this give to Jesus to show that I can string together a couple of sentences and hit all of the four-letter words? But this is what we've got Christians trying to do. And they're practically bragging about it. When he says, separate yourself from them. You're my people. I want to walk with you. I want to dwell with you. Be different. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. I want you, for those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, I want you to see how he describes you. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. There it is again. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He gives you four titles. He refers to you as a chosen race. He refers to you as royalty. He calls you holy, and he calls you his people. We have totally lost sight of how special we are to God. The word that I think of is sacred. Now look, the honest truth is, when I look at a room full of teenagers, I do not think sacred, okay? That's not what comes to my mind, okay? What comes to my mind, well, we won't go there. What, but what comes to God's mind when he looks at this room full of teenagers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ is sacred, These kids are sacred to me. And when we go out from here and we spend more time trying to imitate the world around us and imitate the people around us, whether it's through our actions or our words or whatever the case is, we throw dirt on that picture. We smudge it. You are holy to God. You should live like you are holy to God. Because not everybody on this planet, no matter what they try to say, they're not all God's children. They're not... You are. Do you understand what kind of identity God has given you by calling you out to be his own? And yet we go out there and we don't want people to think we're odd or peculiar, so we'll just fit right in. We'll buddy up with everybody and we'll just try to cover up the fact that we are holy and sacred people. And so the end result, because that's the trend, is we think we've got this all under control. Jesus looks at the church and he sees wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because we have lost our sensitivity to recognize our own sin. We live... So much like the world, we can't even recognize our sin. It's so normal that it doesn't even register with us that the way we're talking, the way we're acting, the way we're presenting ourselves is sin. We are blind. 
You don't have to turn to it. We'll just put it up on the screen. Second John. I'm sorry, First John. First John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm just going to throw three real quick examples out here. Because this in itself can almost be just a message by itself. In America, we value success. Would you agree with that? We love winners. We push to succeed. But what did Jesus say? He said, whoever will be greatest among you will be your servant. We think ambition is a great habit and characteristic to have, to drive for better, make those grades, get that scholarship, get those promotions, make more money. But what did Jesus say? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In America, we think possessions, the accumulation of more, is what it's all about. Get the bigger house. Get the nicer car. Get the latest gadget. But in Luke, when he told the story about the rich man who said, I'm going to tear down these barns and build larger ones so I can hold all of my possessions and then sit back and take it easy. God said to him, you fool, I'm going to require your life tonight. And then whose possessions are these going to be? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's just three things, three examples, where the way the world thinks, where you've been, the way you've been conditioned and trained to think in this country is not just different from the Bible, in some, in some cases, it's in direct opposition to the Bible. But we just eat it up. And we can't even recognize it anymore as sin. Because it's so normal to us. We've blended in so well that you cannot look hardly and see a sacred, holy people of God which is what we're supposed to be. The, uh, I wish I could fully develop this, but we just don't have time. Uh, towards the end of World War II, the USS Indianapolis was making its way in the Pacific Ocean from the island of Guam to the Philippines. And on their way to the Philippines, a Japanese sub picked up their trail, just kind of trailed them for a while, and then about midnight sunk two torpedoes into the ship, and the USS Indianapolis sunk there in the middle of the Pacific. There was like 900-something men on the ship. Most of them survived the initial sinking, so they went into the water. Some of them were in life rafts. Some of them were in life jackets. Some of them had neither. So they're out there floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and their natural assumption would be that the Navy is now going to scramble a rescue operation and come get us. 
The only problem is no Mayday signal was ever issued from the ship. And their mission, their original mission, had been so secret that the Navy bypassed their normal security measures. There was no documentation anywhere that the US USS Indianapolis was even out there. So these 900 men went into the Pacific Ocean. Nobody even knew they were there. So for five days, they fought off thirst. They fought off the sun. They fought off sharks. After a while, men began to lose their minds. On the fifth day, a guy flying overhead, a pilot, happened to notice all of this stuff down there in the ocean and then realized they were people. And by then, after five days, they had drifted so that you know, it was spread out all over the place. So he radios into the base so that they would begin to send a rescue ship out there. But he decides to give these people some hope so that they would know that they'd been spotted. He was flying a float plane, so he identified the largest cluster of men and landed his plane in the ocean near these guys. And then he opened up his doors and was waving to them to come get on the plane. They wouldn't get on the plane. After five days, they were so messed up, they were looking at this plane and thinking, this guy is the enemy. He's tricking us. The few that attempted to get to the plane, other men would stop them. They were drowning their guys in the ocean to keep them from getting on the plane. This guy standing there, he's, think of it this way, their salvation just arrived. And they won't get on. Because they're so mentally messed up that when they look at the plane, they don't see salvation. They see enemy. And not only am I not going to get on the plane, I'm going to keep you from getting on the plane too. That is exactly what we're talking about here. Salvation has arrived. But most people look at it as if it's the enemy. And they not only won't come to him themselves, they want to do everything they can to keep other people from coming to salvation too because we have completely lost our minds. I mean, I know you don't have the spectrum of years like an old man like me has to look at what's, what's going on, but we have lost our minds in America. We have lost it. And what bothers me is how many of you are getting swept up in it and just carried along in the current. I'm begging you to start thinking of yourself the way we described there. You are sacred. To God. You are holy to God. You have been saved to proclaim His excellency. You have been saved to show 
that his people are totally different. Stop trying to be like everybody else. You've been given something so much better. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these young people being here tonight. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just take your word and just help us to absorb it. Help us. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes so that we would recognize where the way that we're living is miserable. And it doesn't have to be. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for you to convict us and correct us and help us to have victory in our lives that would glorify your name. Thank you for these young people and their families. I pray for you to show favor and blessing on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. We are dismissed.